Have you ever really looked forward to something? I mean, there's an event that you put on your calendar and you really looked forward to it and when it happened, you were actually disappointed. I remember uh, a vacation we planned with friends many, many years ago now. We were going to go camping together with these good friends of ours and I had refurbished a camping trailer that was vintage. Okay, it was really old. It was really a broken down, ugly thing. When my friend saw it who was going with us, he said, that looks like it's seen a lot of good days. And it had. It, it was pretty old. But I had refurbished this camping trailer, and we were going to take it. And we planned this trip. We were going to drive from Southern California to Lake Tahoe, and we were going to camp by that beautiful lake, and we were going to have a great time. And the day came for us to leave, and we left really early, and we got about 45 minutes from our house, and a hose blew on my car. So we had to by the side of the road, fix the hose on my car, go get a new hose, fix it. And we got back on the road, and then about two hours later, I was in the middle of the road, in the desert, changing a radiator to a radiator that was large enough, apparently, to pull that really old refurbished trailer that I had put on. And then we thought, okay, finally everything's fixed, we're on the road. It was about three hours after that. I look in my rearview mirror and the lights of my friend's car are blinking on and off and he had noticed that I was losing tread on one of the trailer tires. Yes, a hose, a radiator, a flat tire. Nothing on the trip went exactly as planned. In fact, when we finally got to Lake Tahoe, a day later than we had planned, the next morning, we woke up, and as I'm going to get out of the trailer, the door handle came off in my hand, <laughs> trapping us inside of this trailer until someone could open the door from the outside. So nothing about this trip went as we had hoped. We had dreamed of it being a great time, and it started out really bad, but eventually, it really was a great trip. That might have been the experience of the closest followers of Jesus as they went through what we now call Holy Week. I think that they believed that that time in Jerusalem was going to be a highlight, that it was gonna be a highlight of Jesus's ministry. They thought it would be great, but by Friday, they're hiding, shaking in fear, and it wasn't until Sunday that things got any better. Last week, we began a two-week series called Curious Easter Comments. As I said last weekend, later in the year, we're going to have a series just called Curious Comments, where we will look at some of the things in the Bible that when you read them, it kind of makes you pause and say, what does that mean? What does that mean? And in a few weeks, we will have a form for you to fill out to tell us what curious comments in the Bible you want us to talk about, or you can just write them on your welcome card today. But last weekend, we talked about the curious Easter comment that Jesus made during the Last Supper when he told his followers that he was giving them a new commandment to love one another. And the reason it was a curious comment is because Jesus said it was a new commandment. 
even though it was throughout the Old Testament, even though Jesus had talked to them about loving each other before. And so we talked about why Jesus would call that a new commandment. And you can listen to the message online if you're curious about that. But a lot of things were said and done in the upper room at that dinner table. And so let's start our message there. Let's start our message in the upper room around a dinner table. And if this is my dinner table, my dinner table always has some Diet Coke. So it's here for me. But let's start around that dinner table. Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Have you ever looked forward to sitting down to a meal? Have you ever eagerly desired a meal? I mean, maybe you're looking forward to your family dinner today and you're hoping that this message isn't too long that you won't get to it as fast. And maybe the meal that you eagerly desire could have been a first date with that special person. Or that meal where you proposed to your spouse. Or a meal where you were honored for some achievement at work. But the meal that Jesus eagerly desired was the last meal before he died. It was the last meal before he suffered. He wanted to spend time with his followers before he suffered. He wanted a chance to teach them many things. He wanted to express to them his love. He wanted to plant in their hearts words of encouragement that would help them in just a few hours when they needed it. It, it was an important meal, and Jesus eagerly desired to eat this meal with them. Now, ironically, at the time, it may have just been a pretty normal holiday meal to his followers. There was a lot going on. Jesus spent a lot of time teaching them, and they may have even liked what he said, but it faded from their minds pretty quickly when they left the room. As they walked out of that room, Jesus began walking towards his death. The events of the night unfolded pretty quickly. The prayer in the garden, Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, Jesus being arrested, Peter denying that he even knew Jesus, Jesus being beaten and tortured and condemned to death, and then dying on that cross in front of their eyes. And the events of Friday must have made that special dinner from Thursday night just fade from their minds pretty quickly. The scripture tells us that they were hiding together back in that same room where the dinner took place. And they were trying to figure out what to do. They wondered and worried about whether or not they would be arrested because they were followers of Jesus. They were worried that maybe they might be put to death because they were his followers. They were wondering if they had been foolish to ever believe in Jesus. And they were hurting, they were grieving because they loved him. And he had died. And 
all this was going on, and early on Sunday morning, there was a pounding at the door, and it was Mary, and she had run all the way across town from the tomb, and she was out of breath, but she managed to tell them Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. She said, they have taken the body from the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so John and Peter jumped up. They bolted from the room. They ran to the tomb. And John got there first, but he knelt down at the entrance. And he looked in the open door of the tomb. And when Peter got there, he ran right inside. And look at what the Bible said happened next from John chapter 20. Simon Peter arrived and went into the tomb and saw the strips of linen lying there. He also saw the cloth that had been around Jesus' head, which was folded up and laid in a different place from the strips of linen. Then the other follower, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. The passage has in it what I consider kind of a curious comment. It's one of those details that seem really, really small when you look at it, but it was significant enough to mention and put in Scripture. Why did, why did John mention the folded cloth that was wrapped on Jesus' face? Why did he mention that that cloth was folded and put somewhere else? The cloth would have covered his face. It would have kept the spices that they used to cover his body out of his hair and out of his beard as well as away from his eyes and nose and mouth. Now, let's face it, that didn't matter much to the person who had died. But it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of caring from those who loved the one who had died. But why does John mention specifically the cloth was folded and put in another place. What could the folded cloth mean? Let me give you three possibilities today. The first thing it could mean is the other explanations don't make sense. The other explanations don't make sense. This is one many of the scholars would teach us. This explanation would say that the reason John made a point of talking about the folded napkin or cloth is because it would very quietly blow some holes in what religious leaders and doubters were saying happened that caused the tomb to be empty. And we should pause here just a minute and say no one in Jesus' day doubted that the tomb was empty. There was no debate, there was no question about whether the tomb was empty or not. It was clear that Jesus' body had been placed inside the tomb on Friday with armed guards outside, but he was not inside the tomb on Sunday morning. There was no question about that. No one questioned the fact that the tomb was empty, but there were some theories on why it was empty. Let me give you three theories about why the tomb was empty. The first theory is the body was stolen. The body was stolen, and this was probably the most common theory when John wrote about the folded cloth. It may have been the most common because according to Matthew chapter 28, it was the lie that the religious leaders had bribed the Roman guards to tell. They had bribed the Roman guards. They had paid them to say that Jesus' followers stole the body when they were sleeping. Now, here's the problem with this one. First, the fact that the guards had lived to tell that lie is actually proof that something strange happened there. It's proof that something strange happened there because Roman guards who fell asleep when they were at their post were immediately executed. 
They were immediately put to death for falling asleep. But these guys apparently weren't executed, and they were able to tell everyone the story about the body being stolen while they slept. But here is why mentioning the folded cloth and the strips of linen would blow some holes in that story. If you were stealing a body with armed guards sleeping outside, and you had already managed to move a 2,000 to 4,000 pound stone without waking up the sleeping armed guards, would you take time to unwrap the body? Would you take time to fold the face cloth while you had armed guards sleeping outside? I don't think so. You see, mentioning the cloth was folded would blow holes in that theory. Another common theory is Jesus didn't die, he just swooned. He didn't die, he just kind of fainted. This theory says the Roman guards were wrong when they thought Jesus was dead, but Jesus had just swooned. Now, they stabbed him in the side to verify that he died. And by the way, that spear would have gone in at least a foot if they were doing their jobs right. So it would have gone in a long way. They stabbed him in his side, but apparently they got it wrong when they said that he was dead, and so did his mother, so did his disciples when they buried him and put him in the tomb. So this says everyone got it wrong, that Jesus was really still alive, and he revived after being in the tomb for a little while. Now, I think that's kind of crazy just on the face of it, but to believe that, you have to also believe that Jesus, who had been beaten to death, or beaten close to death, who had lost a lot of blood, who had been hanging on the cross, and then speared in the side, that he had the strength to unwrap himself from this mummy-like wrapping, that he then took the time to fold this cloth that was around his face just before he apparently by himself moved a 2,000 to 4,000 pound rock from the door. And he did that, by the way, from the inside with nothing to grip. Do you understand how that doesn't make a whole lot of sense? The last theory is the one a huge majority of people in America believe. This is the theory that Jesus resurrected. Jesus resurrected. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here with somebody and you might be thinking that I just used preacher exaggeration when I said a huge majority of people in America believe Jesus rose from the dead, but I didn't exaggerate. That comes from a recent study. A recent study found that over 75% of all Americans believe it is a historical fact that Jesus died on the cross and then came back to life three days later. 75%, incredibly, even 75% of people who are not Christians, who are not followers of Jesus, 75% of them believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you look back at those verses from John chapter 20, you will see that when John went into the tomb, he saw the cloths and he believed. Many believe that the language in that passage indicates that the strips were still wrapped up, kind of like a mummy, just with the body missing from the inside. But when they saw the linen cloth or the napkin that had been around his head, folded neatly and laid off to the side, he believed. John believed. 
They saw this and they believed that a miracle had taken place. What they saw in the tomb caused them to believe Jesus has risen from the dead. And I want you to know I believe that too. I believe that too at impact. We believe in a Jesus that came back to life and is still alive today. That's what brings us here today. That's what brings us here every weekend. And all Christianity depends on the fact of the resurrection. Write this down. The Bible says if the resurrection is not true, Christianity is not valid. If the resurrection is not true, Christianity is not valid. Look at what it says in these verses, 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ wasn't raised to life, our message is worthless, and so is your faith. Unless Christ was raised to life, your faith is useless, and you are still living in your sin. Now, if you are here and you aren't a Christian, but you're sincerely searching, trying to decide whether to believe in Jesus or not, whether to believe in the resurrection or not, let me make a suggestion. Let me suggest you push away everything else for a time. Just push away all of the questions. You know, the questions about sinful pastors and priests and questions about the crusades and religious wars and push aside what you feel about that really weird Christian at work. You know, that person who thinks it's their job to be odd for God. Push that away for just a minute and just focus on these two questions. Is Jesus who he said he was? And is the resurrection real? Is Jesus who he said he was, and is the resurrection real? And I believe that if you're honest in your search on those two things, that you will come to some of the same life-changing conclusions that many of us have come to. Then you can deal with those other questions that are nagging questions for you. You see, I agree with the verse that we just read. If you could disprove the resurrection, I couldn't remain a Christian. I just couldn't. If the resurrection isn't true, I've been a fool. But I also agree with verse 20 in the same passage. Look at what it says. But Christ has been raised to life. He makes us certain that others will also be raised to life. So the first possibility of why it was so important to mention the folded cloth was to say the other explanations don't make sense. Here's another idea. Maybe the cloth was folded as a way for Jesus to say, I'm back to being your father. I'm back to being your father. This explanation of the face cloth was shared with one of our friends who lives in Nazareth in Israel. And she is also one of the team members of the ministry that impacts supports in the Holy Land. But she was talking to an older Jewish woman about the passage one day. And the woman related the folded cloth with something that happens in the homes of Jewish rabbis. Now, this right here is a prayer shawl that Jewish rabbis in Israel wear. They wear it while they're praying. They wear it while they're reading the Bible. Uh, often they wear it over their heads as a sign of submission, but they wear it all the time while they're doing their duties as a teacher. And the woman explained to my friend that when the rabbi comes home at night, he takes the prayer shawl and he folds it up. And while he's folding it up very carefully, what he is doing is he's changing roles. And he is saying to his family, 
now I am no, I'm done with my ministry for the day, and now I'm returning to my role as your father. I'm no longer the teacher. Now I'm your father. And the woman thought Jesus may have been saying when he folded that face cloth, I'm done with my role as your teacher. Now I'm returning to my role as your loving heavenly father. Now I know for some of you, the concept of a father isn't a good one. You've been hurt by your dad or maybe even abandoned or abused by him. Or perhaps he was a good man. He just didn't do a good job of communicating his love for you and his pride in you. Now, if you don't have a great view of what it means to be a father, it's even more important for you to understand that God wants to be the father that you always wanted but you never had. He wants to be the father that you always wanted but you never had. He chose you to be his child. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by sending Jesus Christ to die for us. And he did this because he wanted to. You see, Jesus might have been communicating that he was changing roles in our life by folding that faith face cloth. Before his death and resurrection, the focus was on the law, keeping the rules and paying for your mistakes and fearing God and pleasing God. But after the cross, after Jesus came back to life, everything changed. The focus is no longer on the law, but now it is on love. It's not on the law anymore. Now it's on love. And it was the fact that God loved you. It was the fact that God wanted us as his children that sent Jesus to the cross in the first place. And when we trust Jesus for our salvation, we don't have to worry about paying for our mistakes because Jesus already paid the price. And we don't have to fear God because he has adopted us as his kids. You see, my relationship with my kids is not based on their ability to keep my rules. And it's a good thing, because they didn't always keep my rules. They didn't always do a good job. My relationship with my kids isn't based on their ability to keep the rules. My relationship with my kids is based on the fact that I'm crazy and in love with them. And that's how God feels about you. Jesus is crazy in love with you. It would not surprise me at all if Jesus, just after coming back to life, folded the cloth to say to all of us, I'm gladly done with my role as the teacher of the law, and now I'm returning to my role as your loving father. The other picture that I want to share with you is a very special one to think about. By folding the cloth, Jesus may have been saying, I can't wait to come back. I can't wait to come back. Here's what a different lady in Jerusalem told a pastor friend of mine who lived, was living in Jerusalem for a time. She said the word for the cloth around Jesus' face was the same word for a napkin at the dinner table. For a napkin at the dinner table. And she re related the folded cloth in the tomb to another tradition from the Middle East. According to this woman, if you went to someone's house for a meal and uh, you were there at their table and you had a napkin like this at their meal. What you did with this napkin at the end of the meal was really, really important. If you hated the food 
and you didn't really like hanging out with the people that you were with, and you never wanted to come back, you would wad the napkin up and put it on your plate. But if you went to the house and you loved the food and you loved the company and you had a great time, when you were done with the meal, you would very carefully and deliberately fold the napkin and put it on your plate as a way of saying, I can't wait to come back. I can't wait to come back. When I heard this, I became somewhat panicked because I have a lot of friends in the Middle East and I have eaten in most of their homes. And I mean, part of their hospitality is to feed you. I mean, they feed you and they feed you a lot and you have to eat when you go into their house because refusing to eat is an insult to them. And I knew that, but I'd never heard this napkin thing. And suddenly I could not remember what I had done with my napkin at the end of those meals. And I was worried that I had offended my friends without knowing it. But think about this picture. Jesus gets up from the grave just before leaving the tomb, if this picture is correct, he folds the napkin to say, I've enjoyed our time together. I've loved spending time with you. And I can't wait to come back. I can't wait to come back. You see, his second coming will be so much different. He isn't coming as a helpless baby. He's coming as a powerful king. He isn't going to be subject to earthly rulers. But when he comes, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And some will bow their knee in praise because they have been living for him and they've been waiting for him and they've been loving him. But others, others will bow their knee in panic because they've been ignoring him or denying him or pushing him aside. But everyone will know that he's alive. Everyone will know that he is king and that he is Lord. Look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 9. Christ was offered as a sacrifice one time to take away the sins of many people. And he will come a second time, not to offer himself for sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You see, the difference in his coming as a baby in Bethlehem the first time and the second coming when he comes as our powerful king is dramatic in the difference. Before his death and resurrection, the focus was on the rescue, rescuing us from the penalty of sin, rescuing us from the penalty of death, rescuing us from hopelessness from our life and from sin. But after the cross, after he came back, his focus isn't on the rescue, it's on the reunion. It's on the reunion. I mean, that's only natural. Imagine that your kids go off into the mountains and they go hiking in the mountains and they get lost. And when you find out they're lost, you only have one concern. That's getting them found. But when you get the call that they've been found, what's your one concern? Getting your arms around them, hugging them again, being with them. And Jesus has been planning this reunion with him for over 2,000 years. It is going to be a great, big, epic party. It's going to be huge. I think Jesus can't wait to come back. 
So which of these three are right? Which of these is right? Now, which one do you want it to be? You can think about that a minute, but I think they're all right in a way because they stress the heart of God, they stress the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, but I have to be true to God's word. I have to be true to what I think John was saying, and I think that he was saying the first one. I think he wrote about the folded cloth as a way of saying that all of the other explanations of the empty tomb don't make any sense and can't be true. I mean, the rabbi moving back, moving from teacher to father, that's a really cool thing, and it may have happened in rabbis' homes during the time of Jesus. We just don't have any proof of that. And you know, my favorite one is the napkin one. This is my favorite one. And um, Jesus saying, I can't wait to come back with this napkin. I like that. Here's the problem with it. We cannot confirm that that tradition existed at the time of Jesus because we can't confirm that they used napkins during the time of Jesus. I know, bummer, right? But here's the thing. Jesus may not have folded that napkin to say that to us, but he did say that. He did say that. I mean, he said it when he told his followers that he eagerly desired to eat the meal with them. Look back at the verse and look at the next verse. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. He said that to them, and then he went on to say it in a very special way at the Last Supper, sitting around that table. Scripture tells us that Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body. I want you to partake of this to remember my body that walked here on earth and lived here and suffered here, and remember that I now know what it's like to struggle as a human. I know what it's like to have a broken heart. I know what it's like to hurt because I've experienced what you have experienced. And then he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and he gave it to them and he said, this this is my blood that I will shed to pay the price for your sin. He said, every time you take this cup, I want you to remember the blood that makes you clean. I want you to remember the blood that gives you forgiveness. I want you to eat this bread and drink this cup to remember me until I come again. See, after he had given them what we call communion as a way to remember him, according to Matthew, who was an eyewitness, who was there when it happened, Jesus said this from Matthew 26, I want you to know I will not drink this wine again until the day when we are together in my Father's kingdom and the wine is new. Then I will drink it again with you. With you. Sounds to me like Jesus was saying, I can't wait to come back. 
Jesus is looking forward to coming back. He does want to spend time with us. He eagerly desires this meal uh, with us. And by the way, when that happens, guess what? There will be a table there. We will have a banquet. Revelation chapter 19 talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we are all invited when we trust in Jesus. We get to be at that table. And I can't wait to get there. Can't wait to get there. Today, as we do every week, we're going to remember Jesus the way that he asked us to remember him. Today, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And if you don't normally attend Impact, I don't want you to be confused uh, at this time. Uh, you don't have to be a member here to participate in this. If you want to celebrate the love of Jesus, the love he had for you when he died on the cross and when he walked out of the tomb alive again, you are welcome to join us in this ceremony. Just take a piece of the bread and the cup and after thanking Jesus for what he has done for you, partake. Some will partake as the tray is in front of them. Others will hold a piece of bread and the cup for a time and pass the tray to the next person and they will use that time just to think and to pray and to reflect. And you can do whichever feels right to you. And by the way, if you don't want to join us in this, that's okay too. Just pass the tray to the person next to you and spend this time thinking about Jesus or about finding answers to the questions that you have about him. And there'll be some people here by the piano after the service in a yellow lanyard that would be glad to help you with whatever questions you have. But as we get ready to remember Jesus the way that he asked us to, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have loved us with a never-ending love. Thank you, Father, that you are no longer our judge and our teacher, but you are our Father. We thank you, Father, that you want to spend time with us. And when we've trusted in you, we can count on being at that supper, at that meal, sharing with you that bread and that wine around your table. And Father, right now as we do that, as we remember, we pray, Father, that you will understand our heart of love, that you will know how much we want to give ourselves to you Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross. And more importantly, thank you for the victory that he had when he walked out of that tomb alive again. And for the promise that we too can live forever through him. In his name, amen.